Well, hello, and welcome to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and welcome uh, to those of you who are joining us for the first time, as well as those of you who are regular denizens of these airwaves. And uh, I will begin by saying we're always looking for some sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring the Jazz Focus on a regular basis, a recurring basis, you can do a monthly sponsorship or a one-time basis. Just check out those little buttons on your browser from wherever you're listening to the Jazz Focus. So we tend to focus on uh, some kind of limited or focused uh, elements of jazz recorded history. And today we're going to be listening to recordings made over the course of about a week and a half or so in December of 1957 by Jerry Mulligan, the great baritone saxist and arranger. Now, Jerry Mulligan was born in 1927 in New York, although he grew up uh, in several different places, in Ohio, I believe, and Pennsylvania. His father had a job that took him uh, around a bit. But Mulligan became a uh, musician very early. He learned how to play saxophone. I think he started on clarinet, and he also demonstrated a very uh, pronounced interest in arranging for bands, remembering that he was growing up during the big band era, and he really appreciated the sounds that were being made by the great bands like Ellington's and Count Basie's. Not only the individual solo sounds that were coming out of the sections, but the sections themselves and how those sections integrated into the full band. And uh, by his late teens, Mulligan was touring with some, uh, I wouldn't say well-known bands, but some lesser-known big bands, like with one led by Tommy Tucker, uh, a uh, Mickey Mouse band, as they used to call it, a white band that specialized in sweet music and sometimes comedy and novelty stuff as well. And Mulligan, in addition to playing for him, arranged as well. And as he became better known for his arrangements, he started getting hired by other bands. Gene Krupa hired him to play and to arrange in the mid-40s, and uh, Mulligan even appeared in a film with the Krupa band. Uh, several of his scores uh, for the Krupa band became quite well-known, and he was then hired to do uh, work for Elliot Lawrence, which was a very progressive uh, big band in the late 1940s, mid to late 40s, and uh, some of the tunes that he recorded for Elliot Lawrence became classics as well, things like Elevation. Then he... Uh, began a, or simultaneously was arranging for Claude Thornhill, who had been a piano player and songwriter and band leader from the 1930s, uh, who was known for his sophistication of sounds and uh, musical outlook. And by the middle and late 1940s, he was leading a band that was uh, really unusual for, among big bands. It wasn't loud, even though it was fairly large. It was very contained, and it had beautiful uh, control of texture and dynamics. There was a band that could uh, field a, a section of five or six clarinets, three French horns, uh, tuba, all kinds of uh, interesting sounds that came out of the Claude Thornhill band. And arrangers liked to arrange for him, and Jerry Mulligan did. And uh, uh, Mulligan uh, provided them with some bebop-influenced uh, scores, like Yardbird Suite and Ornithology. By 1948-49, he was uh, pretty much uh, ensconced in New York City, uh, and he was taking up with some of the musicians of the Thornhill Band, as well as some other musicians, some African-American musicians like Miles Davis and John Lewis, and... Uh, they became a kind of a laboratory group that would meet in, in uh, Gil Evans' apartment to try out new musical ideas and scores. And this became The Birth of the Cool, uh, which was a group, a nine-piece band, the Miles Davis Nonette, that made a series of recordings in 1949 that were commercially not very successful. The band itself was not successful at all, uh, but they became very critically accepted and also became quite an influence on jazz musicians, not only at that time, but moving forward as well. 
In fact, it was that group that uh, sort of set the standard for what came to be known as West Coast Jazz, which is a magnificent anomaly since none of the musicians were from the West Coast, and uh, those recordings were, of course, made in New York City. But following the collapse of that band, uh, Mulligan uh, went west and ended up in Los Angeles and Hollywood and started playing with some groups out there. He uh, made the acquaintance of a trumpet player named Chet Baker, who was a, a very well-thought-of young bebop musician, although his playing was much more uh, of, of, uh, of the style of Miles Davis than someone like Dizzy Gillespie or Red Rodney or someone like that. Very quiet and introspective and very melodic, and his playing matched Mulligan's melodic sense as well. And the two of them started uh, putting together different jazz combos, and at one point uh, their piano player didn't show up for a recording date, and at another point a venue they played at didn't have a piano to begin with. So they started experimenting with pianoless, uh, really chordless jazz ensembles, meaning no piano, no guitar, no, no, no instrument that could play multiple notes in a chord pattern. So that allowed the two of them a lot of freedom in their improvisations. They still uh, adhered quite strictly to the forms of tunes that were established, and the basic chord structure, but they could use chord extensions and uh, take some risks that would not have been possible if they had been constrained by a chord progression. And the two of them, Baker and Mulligan, as I said, were very melodic players, and they could improvise lines together that sounded composed. They almost sounded like Baroque counterpoint exercises, beautiful um, spinning lines that just uh, bounced off each other and crossed uh, around and, and went together and apart and just were really uh, extraordinary to listen to. And these were uh, uh, things that were recorded in about 1950, 51, 52 for Emerson, for Verve, and for a number of West Coast labels. Um, and the band, the quartet, became quite well known. It became quite successful as well. Unfortunately, in 1953, Mulligan was arrested on a narcotics Charge, and he became a, a guest of the state of California for six months to a year, I think, and was out of circulation. By the time he came back, uh, having fortunately kicked his habit or was in the process of kicking his habit, uh, he wanted to put the band back together again, but Baker had already gone out on his own and had achieved some success. He unfortunately never did kick his drug habit. But Mulligan uh, would not be deterred, so he replaced uh, Baker with a series of players, including Bob Brookmeyer on valve trombone and uh, Art Farmer on trumpet and some other players as well, saxophonists like Zoot Sims and even Lee Konitz. But uh, it was still generally a quartet. Occasionally was expanded to a sextet. So Mulligan played through the 1950s with a series of different groups, continued to make some very fine arrangements for different bands, and uh, became a well-known recording artist. In December of 1957, Dick Bach, who was in charge of Pacific Records, brought Mulligan into the studios for about a week and a half and recorded numerous albums worth of material of Mulligan in different settings. And we're going to start with one of them, uh, and we're going to end with the same one, in fact. We're going to actually be focusing on two of those uh uh, album settings that uh, Mulligan did in December of 1957. The first one is going to be a reunion, and that was what the album was called, Reunion, Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker, the quartet, which will also feature Henry Grimes on bass and Dave Bailey on drums. And if they didn't quite capture, recapture the magic of uh, seven or eight years earlier, they created some very compelling and interesting music that showed... Uh, incredible listening skills, among other attributes. We're going to start out with uh, the Cole Porter tune, My Heart Belongs to Daddy, which to me just represents an effortless swing that uh, 
hardly anybody has ever come close to in terms of um, what Mulligan was doing as a soloist. But the interplay between him and Chet Baker and the other two members of the quartet are also uh, among the great uh, reasons to listen to this music. We're going to follow that up with a ballad performance of Hoagy Carmichael's classic tune, Stardust. And then we're going to finish up that short set with Little Benny Harris's famous tune, Ornithology, made famous by Charlie Parker, and based on the chord changes and form of the pop tune, How High the Moon. So those are our three tunes for our first set. My Heart Belongs to Daddy, Stardust, and Ornithology. Thank you. 
Some pretty extraordinary uh, music being composed and performed there, considering the fact there were only four musicians and no chords involved. I don't know how much of that uh, Mulligan wrote out as an arrangement of those performances, but uh, I suspect probably not too much of it. Some of it was probably uh, 
agreed on a little bit beforehand in a discussion, but I have a feeling with that type of group, quite a lot of it uh, evolved just uh, generically, just uh, organically as they were playing. So uh, very interesting performances. We started out with My Heart Belongs to Daddy, which for my money is one of the best Jerry Mulligan recordings of all time. Just phenomenal what he does in there as a performer. And then, of course, as the soloists uh, give up their solos to the next solo, they recede into the background, but they keep playing. So there's some... Um, line going on behind the other soloist. That really brings jazz back to its beginnings as an ensemble music in, in New Orleans, or at least the music we perceive of as being New Orleans jazz. After that, we heard beautiful ballad statements by both Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan on Stardust. Uh, very, almost rubato, but not quite. It still had a beat to it, but just a beautifully paced performance. And then we ended up with the modern jazz, so-called bebop standard ornithology, which in addition to having first-rate solos all around by all the musicians, uh, certainly also had great interplay, especially towards the end between Baker and Mulligan. And of course, we were remiss in not pointing out their other two compatriots in this band, Henry Grimes on bass and Dave Bailey on drums. So now we're going to uh, go to that unusual session I'd mentioned earlier, Jerry Mulligan with the Vinnie Burke String Quartet. And uh, this was a, an unreleased session. I don't know if they got enough for a full album or not on there. This was all recorded on December 5th of 1957. Four sides were released on a Pacific Jazz CD that came out in 1995, and I believe there were some other ones as well. I don't know if they've seen the light of day on various issues or not, but we're going to hear The Preacher by Horace Silver and Good Bait, the Tad Dameron tune. And this is done, as I said, by Jerry Mulligan with the uh, Vinnie Burke uh, string quartet, I guess you'd have to say, and with Dave Bailey on drums. And Dave Bailey, I should mention, was uh, Jerry Mulligan's regular drummer at the time. Vinnie Burke was the bass player of this group, Kalo Scott on cello, Paul Palmieri on guitar, and Dick Wetmore on violin. Dick Wetmore was a Boston native who played cornet in a number of traditional jazz bands uh, in the Boston area, and he also played violin in a more swingy style, and somehow he ended up uh, playing with this group in uh, New York in the 1950s. And so a very interesting group with, uh, I think the arrangements are by Mulligan, and uh, we're going to hear those two tunes, The Preacher and Good Bait, and uh, lots of solos all around, but some wonderful Mulligan playing. And as I said, this was done during that week or week and a half of uh, uh, recording activity for Pacific Records. Other si other uh, recording sessions that were done during this period were um, a uh, an album called uh, Annie Ross Sings Jerry Mulligan. So Annie Ross was a vocalist backed up by a Jerry Mulligan group. And also a uh, salute to Jerry Mulligan's uh, compositions, where uh, it was an all-star saxophone section playing Bill Holman arrangements of the Mulligan tunes, including Mulligan on baritone saxophone. And uh, uh, that group featured Lee Konitz, Alan Eager, uh, Zoot Sims, and Al Cohn, a very, very fine group, and I think we're going to be doing another podcast of that group and possibly the Annie Ross stuff as well. So right now we're going to hear from December 5th of 1957, The Preacher and Good Bait. <laughs> Mmm. -hmm. 
string quartet and uh it's a as i said an unreleased session the notes say that the uh album had cover art and a uh, a catalog number already issued to it but it was never released so not sure why but an interesting concept uh we heard paul palmieri on guitar doing some solos and some backgrounds along with dick wetmore playing violin solos kalo scott on cello doing some picked cello solos, and Vinnie Burke on bass. And that was with Jerry Mulligan on baritone sax and Dave Bailey on drums. We heard The Preacher by Horace Silver and Good Bait, one of the great Tad Dameron songs. This one goes back to the mid-1940s. And those were recorded, as I said, on December 5th, 1957. So we're going to go back to uh, the Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker Quartet and the reunion of the quartet, I should say, and uh, here are three more tunes from the album called Reunion, suitably enough, that were from that same period, that same week and a half or so in December of 1957. We're going to hear three songs. We're going to hear Jerome Kern's All the Things You Are, which had become a very popular tune among jazz players in the 19, late 1940s and into the 50s. It was a, a very unusually constructed tune with some very uh, sophisticated chord changes, and that uh, served as a challenge for jazz improvisers at the time. Then, to the other side of the coin, a very simple tune from the uh, late 1920s by Don Redman, the great band leader and saxophone uh, player and arranger, and Andy Razaf, uh, who did the lyrics. We're not hearing lyrics on this one, but doesn't take too much to imagine where they fall. The tune is called Gee Baby Ain't I Good to You, a very bluesy tune that uh, Mulligan and Baker go to town on. And then we're going to finish up with a perennial jazz tune by George and Ira Gershwin called I Got Rhythm. And that uh, uh, will finish out our Jerry Mulligan in 1957 program. Although, as I said, I think we may have to do another podcast of some of those other recording sessions, particularly the Jerry Mulligan songbook session with the saxophone section. Very interesting group and lots of fabulous playing on there. 
So this is, uh, as I said, the Jerry Mulligan Quartet with uh, Chet Baker on trumpet, Henry Grimes on bass. Henry Grimes had really just joined the Jerry Mulligan uh, orbit as a uh, bass player. And he had been playing with Sonny Rollins, and he had even played with Charles Mingus. Mingus had experimented with a group where he used two bass players, and I think uh, Mingus occasionally would... Uh, play some piano and even some cello, I think, once in a while. But Henry Grimes was the other bass player there, and he played with some other uh, bands as well before joining Mulligan for uh, quite a long period. And Dave Bailey, who was a mainstay with Jerry Mulligan's groups, playing drums. So those are our three tunes. All the things you are, gee baby, ain't I good to you, and I got rhythm. <laughs> Thank you. 
to call that collective improvisation since there are only two horns. Maybe simultaneous improvisation is a better way of putting that. The uh, interplay between the trumpet and the baritone saxophone, especially in that last number, was really exciting in one sense, but just intriguing in another. Uh, we had some uh, evolving uh, quotes of different I Got Rhythm variants, like uh, Lester Leaps In, I think I heard, and Cottontail at the end. Some very interesting playing there by the uh, uh, Jerry Mulligan Quartet featuring Chet Baker from 1957. So we ended up there with I Got Rhythm, a very lively performance, having solos all around, including uh, by Henry Grimes on bass and Dave Bailey on drums. Before that, we heard a nice bluesy ballad performance of Gee Baby Ain't I Good to You, starting out with just baritone sax and bass, and then adding in drums and trumpet as they went on, a nicely layered performance. And beginning that set with All the Things You Are, the great Jerome Kern tune. So... 
Never has so much been done with so little as far as this quartet is concerned. Mulligan uh, probably sketched out some arrangements. Maybe he uh, did some introductions and endings. I don't know, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest to find out that most of that or a good chunk of that interplay was just uh, coincidence or, or just a natural evolution as they were playing. Uh, a group of four players who very clearly were thinking along the same lines. So we hope you've enjoyed this Jerry Mulligan 1957 program today. This is the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and I uh, hope you consider uh, sponsoring us at some point. But more importantly, hope you keep tuning in as we bring some maybe little-known jazz to these airwaves. And, uh, lots of interesting things, I hope interesting things, coming up on the Jazz Focus. And uh, you'll just have to tune in and see what's next. So until then, I'll see you on the other side.